calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am thrilled to invite you to Rachel Uncensored, my podcast where I get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. From personal stories to hot button issues, we cover it all. New episodes drop every Wednesday, so make sure you tune in on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. Hi, I'm Keegan. And I'm Madigan. And you're listening to Your Your Angry Angry Neighborhood Neighborhood Feminist. Feminist. This is a podcast where we explore the world through our own personal feminist perspectives. What's up? And we are doing a last-minute feminist fave. Yep. We uh, had a little bit of a stressful time picking out a topic and going back and forth. So we were like, you know what? An oldie but goodie, old, reliable feminist fave is what we need. We had another topic picked out, and this morning I was texting Madigan, and I'm like, man... This is a lot. Well, I was texting you yesterday where I was just like, I don't know, should I do this? No, I'm changing it again. No, I'm doing this person. And I was just like, I can't. So we were just both like, you know what? Let's just do a feminist fave. (laughs) So uh, last minute, we decided to do this thing. And I got to say, sometimes great things come out of last minute. Oh, I'm happy. Because I, this story is amazing. I cannot wait to tell it. And I'm going first this week. Yes, you are. So I'm going to start now. I'm going to be talking today about Reese Taylor. Oh, yes. Okay. You know about Reese Taylor? Mm-hmm. Okay. I knew a little bit, but not a whole lot, and I want to know more. So, here it is. Reese Corbett was born on December 31st, 1919 in Abbeville, is how I was heard, heard, hearing it said. Alabama? I don't know. I'm, yeah, that's I'm going to say right. Abbeville. I'm going to say it a lot, so I really apologize to anybody from Alabama if I'm saying it wrong, but I'm going to say Abbeville. I'm fairly certain that's right. Okay. Oprah said it that way, so. Yeah. I feel like Oprah's right. So her parents were farm workers, and they did sharecropping, and she also did that when she got older as well. Her mother died when she was 17, and she was left to care for her six siblings. Uh, It sounds like her dad was around, but they don't really go into it. I think being the oldest uh, woman especially, it probably fell on her shoulders to help care for the children. Uh, Like I said, she also worked as a sharecropper. At age 24, she married Willie Guy Taylor, and together they had a daughter, Joyce Lee. On September 3rd, 1944, Reese was walking home from church with her friend Fanny and Fanny's son, West, when a car pulled up on the side of the road. In the car was a U.S. Army private, Herbert Lovett, and six other men. They were all armed. Lovett accused Taylor of cutting Tommy Clarson, uh, that white boy, at the Clopton this evening. And Reese was like, I was with Fanny all day. We were at church. I don't know what you're talking about. The seven men then forced Reese into the car at gunpoint and drove her to a patch of trees on the side of the road while forcing her clothes off. And I'm going to give a trigger warning because there's a lot of stuff in right, this, this story is that is 
triggering. Awful. Yeah. yeah. So while forcing her clothes off, they said, get them rags off. I'll kill you and leave you down here in the woods. Reese begged them to be to be returned home to her family. The man ignored her pleading, removed her, removed their clothes and watched as Lovett ordered Reese to lie down and quote, act just like you do with your husband or I'll cut your damn throat. Very, very disturbing. She was raped by six of the men, including Lovett. Fanny had immediately reported the kidnapping and identified the car as belonging to Hugo Wilson, who admitted to picking up Taylor and carrying her to the spot. Wilson pinned the rape on the six other men, Dillard York, Billy Howerton, Herbert Lovett, Luther Lee, Joe Culpepper, and, Ro- and Robert Gamble. Even though witnesses ID'd Wilson as the driver of the car, the police didn't call any of the other men named into the station, and none of them were arrested. Shocking. Yeah, right? Wilson was fined with $250, which in today's money it said would be about $3,560. But that is, it's nothing. It's a slap on the wrist. The black community of Abbeville was outraged by the police's response and reported the event to the NAACP in Montgomery. The NAACP sent Rosa Parks to investigate. In October, the Chicago Defender, which had a national African-American audience, ran a front-page article entitled Victim of White Alabama Rapists, which profiled Reese in the case. So now we're going to get into the first grand jury. Um, yeah, Parks, I want to pause for just a second. Yeah. So I just want to point out to people, I know it doesn't need to be said every single time, but what year was this? 1944. 1944. So... If you think about that, mm-hmm. it really, really wasn't that long ago. My no. grandparents were born in the 40s. Like yeah. it's, It wasn't very long ago at all. So this is the kind of thing that whenever white people in particular, usually white people, tell black yeah. people to get over it mm-hmm. <laughs> about racism or slavery because that stuff doesn't happen anymore, take into account that your grandmother or great-grandmother could have been living, or I mean, this could have happened Yeah, then. this was only a few years before my dad was born. And imagine, just imagine the helplessness that you would feel if yeah. you could not go to anyone. And I was just... And then when you did try to, nothing happened. Right, and you, you, I mean, and you would have to know that probably nothing would happen. Like, that's yeah. the thing, and like, it's... Everything is compounded, and the society we live in wasn't created in a vacuum. And I was just having this conversation. I went to Disneyland over the weekend with some of my girlfriends, and we were driving back, and there was a big billboard for Nipsey Hussle. And people were—I was talking to them about how people were kind of like, well, whatever, he was a a gangbanger anyway. And they don't understand that these communities— don't trust police. Why yeah. do you think gang activity happens? Do you think that people just join gangs just for, you know, shits and giggles because they yeah. want to? And a lot of times they need protection. They need protection and they don't trust the police. Yeah. <laughs> this is the same neighborhood, you know, that, like, NWA came out of. Fuck mm-hmm. the police Police came out of. And yep. it's because of things like this. Mm-hmm. There's such a massive distrust of law enforcement. And it's why black men run from police and then get shot. It's all of these things... None of it exists in a vacuum, right? And also, all of this still exists today. This story could be told saying that it happened yesterday, and I would still believe 100% of it. And the only difference, the only difference is that police in, you know, the Deep South in the 1940s could do it blatantly out in the open. Yeah. Whereas now, it's much more secretive, 
there are more roundabout ways of doing things like this if you're trying to, like, uh, disenfranchise communities. Yeah. Whereas back then, literally, I mean, they didn't care goes. to yeah. call anyone in. They didn't... I'm sure until it started to take off, they absolutely weren't afraid at no, all that because anything they had no reason to be afraid was because it had happen. never happened before. Yeah, like it didn't matter. So, yeah. so you pissed off some black people. That yeah. they didn't care about that exactly, and they didn't look at her as a person. And why ruin all these white men's lives over exactly. this one? black woman yep so anyway that's well, my sidebar no 100 percent glad that you jumped in uh shit's gonna make you even more mad coming up so parks took the case to montgomery to form support for Reese and with the assistance of ed nixon rufus a lewis and eg jackson they formed the alabama committee for equal justice for taylor the group recruited supporters across the country, and by the spring of 1945, the Chicago Defender called the group the strongest campaign for equal justice to be seen in a decade. So the grand jury hearing took place on October 3rd and 4th in 1944 with an all-male, all-white jury. Great. Yeah. Wonderful. Things are starting off wonderfully. Yeah, we're off great to a start. A great start. So, remember, none of the assailants have been arrested, which meant that the only witnesses were Reese's black friends and family. So, of course, with the jury that they had, things didn't go so well. Also, Reese's family didn't even know the names of the men who um, had attacked Reese. Uh, Sheriff Gamble never arranged a police lineup, so Reese couldn't identify her attackers in court. Mm-hmm. So, everything was kind of working against her. Yeah, the 100%. system was stacked against her completely. 100%. Um, the fact that there was even a hearing at all, I feel like, was just such a, a joke. You know what I mean? Like, sh- I'm glad that she got the hearing, but she was set up for failure the entire time. It may as well not have even happened. Uh, after only five minutes of deliberation, the jury dismissed the case. Yeah, it was a formality. They it really, they really did was. it for optics because this thing had gotten out of control and had gotten way too much attention. So they figure if they can just give it a grand jury hearing, again, it, you it know, it'll appease them and they'll move on. And so many people, especially people outside of the black community, um, you know, white passive people who mm-hmm. might read a newspaper paper and say, oh, that's terrible. But as soon as they see that it had a grand jury hearing yeah. a- and that it was dismissed, they can say, oh, well, yeah. you know, it went to court and it was dismissed, so it must be okay now. Yeah. You know, exactly. without having to, they can rest easy without having to look at it any further. Exactly. It was know? a way to, to appease people people on all sides it really was so the only way it would be reopened was through an indictment from the second grand jury so in the months following the trial Reese received multiple death threats and her home was firebombed by white supremacists Reese's family had to move in with her father and siblings for protection they were afraid to go out after dark and Reese was even too afraid to go out during the day I don't blame her I would never leave my house and even I would never leave my bedroom and I would have well Locked. The, the trauma alone yeah. from that one event would be tremendous. Almost impossible for anybody to get over already. And then you've been re victimized in a court. You've been re victimized by your police. And then you have had the vigilantes of the town. Right. You, where your children sleep, yep. where your husband is, where your family is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how you ever recover from something like that. I think yeah. it takes a tremendously strong person to be able to make it through that. Yeah. Like, she not only feared the vigilantes, but she also really feared her attackers that were still out there. Yeah. Because and nothing completely happened to free. them. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Uh, her father, Benny, took guard in a tree every night with his gun until daybreak. That is a good dad, but something that no dad should ever have to do. Well, or any yeah, it's, have it's to out do. of necessity. Yeah. You know what I mean? I mean, there's this great 
um, Black Power mixtape. I think I talked about this whenever I did Angela Davis, but there's this great Black Power mixtape that's Angela Davis, and, you know, she's part of the Black Panthers, and Mm -hmm. it was back when the Black Panthers were patrolling the streets with guns, Mm -hmm. and a white interviewer is talking to her, and he was just like, what what are your thoughts on this, like, gun violence? People who say that you guys are violent and you need to take a a less violent approach. And she said, you know, I'm from the town where the those girls in that church died in that bombing. Yeah. My dad used to have to sit on the porch every night with a gun to protect us from white people. And yeah. you want to talk about us and our communities about exactly. violence? Like, like, you're, like, like they're the ones being violent. You want to take away our guns? Exactly. Like, they needed this gun. Mm-hmm. To like, And you know how I feel about guns. You know that I'm like... 100%, but there, I think, I think this would be the time and the place to have a gun and to protect well, and yourself it's just and your family. always the way that these conversations go, right? Where they're like, black people are dangerous and oh my god, yeah. uh, the Black Panthers are on the streets with guns. Look yeah. how fast gun reform happened as soon as black people were walking around the yep. streets with guns because black people are somehow inherently more dangerous mm-hmm. when everything about the white people in this story is the most... Dangerous part. The dangerous it's the most, most dangerous part. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So they really thought that they would spend... The whole family thought they would spend the rest of their lives in fear after this. So the activists for Reese Taylor's case convened at the Negro Masonic Temple in Birmingham, where the NAACP editors and reporters from the Alabama Tribune, Birmingham World, the Southern Negro Youth Congress, among others, coordinated efforts to bring justice to Reese. They spread the word all the way to Harlem, New York, with Reese's story being reported to the point where it reached nationwide interest. Newspapers attacked segregation and the defense of white womanhood, as well as the manipulation of interracial rape to justify violence against black men. Mm-hmm. And that's something that we've talked about a lot, where it's like, this is the danger. They turned it around to the black men being the scary. Well, yeah, birth of a nation. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Well, and there's also the hyper-sexualization of black women, mm-hmm. which we talked about when we talked about... Um, well, and that happens with Reese as well. Yeah, and when we talked about uh, the suffragette movement and, like, women of color within the suffragette movement and why it was seen as kind of, like, radical for white women to include black women, a large part of that was because of the over-sexualization of black women. And, and some of these, like, white abolitionists slash suffragettes, when they took up this cause... Uh, for black women, a large part of it was because black women were being raped with impunity because people were seeing them as hypersexual beings anyway. Exactly. As someone who kind of asked for it or wanted it. Exactly. So black activists started writing to Chauncey Sparks, who was the governor of Alabama, and he eventually and reluctantly agreed to launch an investigation after their police were compared to the Nazis. So he's like, um... We're being compared to Nazis, so I feel... In the 1940s, they're being compared to Nazis. I know, so right? Like, shit. It's like, I should probably do something. Again, he's like, I'm going to appease all of these people. Uh, Rosa Parks spearheaded the creation of the Committee for Equal Justice for Mrs. Reese Taylor, which gathered national support. The group had many incredible members, such as W.E.B. Dubois, Charlotte Hawkins Brown, and many, many other important names. Once the investigation began, Sheriff Gamble was interviewed again about the measures he took to accomplish justice for Mrs. Taylor. Gamble falsely claimed that he started the investigation immediately after the attack. Oh, you little bitch. Yep. That he arrested all the men involved and that he placed Hugo Wilson on a $500 bond. All bullshit. And everyone stop and think about your feelings about this man right now. Yeah. Um, 
this is what it's going to feel like if you're on the wrong side of history in 50 years. Exactly. <laughs> because you look back on him and you're like, how would he even answer for himself right now? If yeah. that was your father or grandfather, how would you answer for him? Yep. You know what I nope. mean? Like. Yeah. He accused Reese, and this is what we were, you were just saying, he accused Reese of being nothing but a whore around Abbeville and claimed that she had been treated for a venereal disease. So he was trying to hypersexualize her, saying that, The like, sheriff? Yeah. Oh, you piece of shit. Yeah. He was saying that, like, well, look, she's this type of woman, so of course this is going to happen to her. And it's okay if it does. Exactly. And the men's actions are completely justified. Oh, totally. Because of it. Like, yep. that I've never understood. Makes sense. I will never understand that defense of just, mm-hmm. like... It doesn't matter. It yep. doesn't matter. It, nothing she did should have been like, well, then it's okay for six people to do this to Exactly. Her. It doesn't matter what kind of sex life she has. It doesn't matter if she was a sex worker. And it sounds like, like none of that's true anyway. It isn't. It's all, but it wouldn't it's all have mattered false. either way. It, it wouldn't. But he is really trying to cover his ass. The other white men in Abbeville described Reese as an upstanding and respectable woman who, quote, abided by the town's racial and sexual mores. <sighs> Great. Mm. Wonderful. Applause for Good, you, I white men. Like, uh, <laughs> I know. I know. They interviewed the rapist, and four out of seven admitted to having intercourse with her, but denied knowing anything about the attack. So Joe, Joe Culpepper, who's still a dick, at least admitted that they were out looking for a woman on the night of the attack and retold the story verbatim to Reese's original account. Even with this testimony, the attorney general couldn't convince jurors that there was enough evidence to indict the seven men. The sec- And it was also a, the second all-white male jury uh, that refused to issue the indictment. Mm. So it was two juries of all-white men, which is just... You'd think that after the first time that maybe it would change, but I guess that's wishful thinking on my part. Well, I guess it depends on what part... I don't know what the laws were like yeah. in this area at this time. I mean, know? it probably was very difficult to get uh, a, a jury of their peers, I feel like, because well, of the racism in Alabama. And women couldn't serve on juries for a while I don't in, believe in so. certain areas, yeah. so it depends, I guess. Yeah, it's not, it's not surprising. It's horrifying, yeah. but it's not surprising. Um, the black community was shocked by the outcome, which to me, I'm kind of like, were they shocked, really, or were they just very, very upset about it? Because I feel like this is something that happened a lot. They were probably disappointed. Yeah. I could see getting your... I don't... I, yeah, I think shocked is probably the wrong word. I thought so, I could too. see getting your hopes up and being like, maybe this time, and then being disappointed. Oh, for me, as soon as I saw that jury walk in, I'd be like, yeah, we're fucked. This isn't going to happen. And hearing the testimony of the sheriff, who are... You, you still know, want to believe in the goodness of people, I, and especially after, like, if... If that guy's account matches hers, you could be like, well, a white guy is saying it now. Yeah, exactly. And you still don't believe it? 100%. So the news coverage of the second hearing was more hostile based on the false claims of Reese being a sex worker. So they really dug into that account that the sheriff said and really um, made her look really bad, made her uh, made people not want to give her the sympathy that she deserved for what she was going through. But despite the outcome, this case was seen as a victory for the formation of the civil rights movement because of the successful mobilization of activists across the nation. The Reese Taylor case built the building blocks of the Montgomery bus boycott a decade earlier, they say. So Reese lived in Abbeville for 20 more years after the attack. She said during those years she lived in fear and that many white people in town continued to treat her badly, even after the attackers left. She eventually moved to Florida and worked picking oranges. She later separated from her husband, and their only child died in a car accident in 1967. Oh. Very, very sad. Uh, Racy lived in Florida for many years Why until... Why are these stories always so sad? I know! Like, you know, the loving story is kind of the same way. Yeah. Where it was just like, 
after all of that, you know, the interracial couple, the first interracial couple to like fight the fight the law to yeah. be legal. Um, after all of that, like he died in a car crash, yeah. And I was just like, "What the Why? fuck? Like, <laughs> no, let them be happy." I know, right? Let them goddamn be happy. So, Reese lived in Florida for many years until her family brought her back to Abbeville due to failing health. The publication of a Daniel L. McGuire book led to formal apologies from the Alabama legislature to Reese on behalf of the state for its failure to prosecute her attackers. Oh, really? Are you sorry? I know. They're just sorry. Thanks so much for your apology. Yeah. She received more apologies from the state representative, Abbeville mayor, and the county probate judge on Mother's Day in 2011 at the Rock Hill Holiness Church in Abbeville, the same church she attended the day of the attack. Reese said of the apologies... I felt good. That was a good day to present it to me. I wasn't expecting that. In 2011, she visited the White House to attend a forum on Rosa Parks at the National Press Club. In 2017, Nancy Bierski made a documentary called The Rape of Reese Taylor, and it premiered in 2007. It focuses on Reese and her family recounting the struggle for justice and seeks to expose the contest the context of a systemic racism that still persists today. That, oh, that's exactly what I was talking about. Yeah, yeah there's context to everything, and yeah. that's something that we need to account for and talk about. Um, gosh, but that kind of documentary, I can't watch it. It's like, I have been trying so hard to watch that Khalif Browder documentary that's been mm-hmm. out for years, and I cannot make myself do it because I know... You have to protect yourself in some way. I know how know? it ends, and I'm just yeah. like, I'm going to be so furious. Then you don't have to see it. You, you know, know, I feel like with those types of things, you have to be uh, very, very mindful of what you can take and what you can't take. Well, and you, you just want justice, yeah. you know what I mean? And it's it just feels so unjust mm-hmm. that it's frustrating. Yeah. In 2018, Oprah Winfrey spoke of Taylor, saying they threatened to kill her if she ever told anyone. Reese Taylor died 10 days ago. For too long, women have not been heard or believed if they dared speak their truth to the power of those men. And I just hope, I just hope that Reese Taylor died knowing that her truth goes marching on. In discussing the historical context, Daniel McGuire noted, Decades before the women's movement, decades before there were speakouts or anyone saying me too, Reese Taylor testified about her assaults to people who could very easily have killed her, who tried to kill her. In describing Taylor later in life, McGuire said, She was funny, witty. She was a churchgoer. She loved going to church. She loved to sing. She was very welcoming. At the 2018 State of the Union, members of the Congressional Black Caucus invited Taylor's family to attend the speech and wore red Reese pins in honor of Taylor. Aww. Yeah. So I I mentioned it in the mini episode, but April is Sexual Assault Awareness Month. So I really wanted to tell a story that highlighted, um, I mean, a very, very sad story, but unfortunately something that still happens all the time to so many men and women who are not believed, but especially women, um, who are not believed when they are attacked, who are afraid to come forward. And I believe that it's stories like this that, um, you know, given whatever the outcome is of these situations, I feel like it inspires people to come forward and to speak their truth about what's happened to them, uh, to gain closure and to stand up for everybody else who's ever gone through something like that. Mm-hmm. The more we speak up, the more the stigma is going to go away about what it means to be sexually assaulted. I mean, look at what she went through. Look at how her reputation was, you know, being dragged through the mud, how she was almost killed. Well, yeah, I mean, like her life was, in in some ways, I think you could look at what happened and wonder if it was worth it for her to come forward 100%. because 
because it was so difficult. And in so many ways, it seems like there wasn't any justice. Mm-mm. But you can look at... There is, there is kind of a karmic justice when you look at her legacy yeah. and look at the legacy of the men whose names are forever tied to this event 100%. because they did something awful. Yeah, maybe in their lives they weren't... Uh, you know, scorned for this, but I feel like but their legacy, their are, legacy is completely are ruined, tarnished. and that's ex- you know. So when you compare, that almost like, means more. Yeah, when you compare her legacy to their legacy, you know, um, you can say that Reese won in yeah. that way because the world knows now exactly like what they were and what yeah. they did and what she lived through and what she was strong enough to come out and talk about exactly. Like, and I think that she's, you know, another story that is inspiring even now to people, I feel like especially this month, who, you know, maybe have kept their stories a secret or have felt a lot of shame about their sexual assaults. And I feel like when you hear about somebody, even when it doesn't go well, um, coming forward and speaking their truth, I feel like it is something that it, uh, brings a lot of strength to women especially. So I hope that that story could do that for all of you. It definitely made me feel a lot of different things learning mm-hmm. about her so, yeah. 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 Thank you. It was You're great. Welcome. I'm excited to hear your story. Okay, so... Tell me a story while I drink. I will. So, we just did an episode on women in sports. Mm-hmm. And so, I was thinking about women in sports because you know I'm not a sports person. Mm-hmm. But I do really admire female athletes. Yeah. I admire athletes in general because... I get winded going up a flight of stairs. So for me, I'm like, this is incredible. Yeah. You can push your body. One of my favorite things is to look at that naked sports illustrated like edition. Yeah. Have you seen that thing? Oh yeah. Like that comes out every year. Oh, the Adam Ripon one where and his Ashley body was Wagner like insanity. Too. Dude, Ashley Wagner got like she's a figure female figure skater. She got dragged through the mud for that because figure skaters are supposed to be all pure. Who or gives a fuck? I Their know. bodies it's are beautiful. Like, yeah, they are. There's something so incredible looking at looking at these like figures it's not even it's like a work of art i know they're like greek gods and yeah yeah it's amazing it's beautiful so with that in mind i am going to be talking about alice coachman okay tell me about her okay alice marie coachman was born on november 9th 1923 in albany georgia now our people have some things in common because they are both black women who were born in the deep segregated south yes so uh, she was one of 10 children, wow. and she took, I know, too many. <laughs> that poor mother. <laughs> too many. Uh, but she took an interest in sports at a young age. She was raised in the heart of the segregated South, so she was denied the opportunity to train for or compete in organized sports events yeah. because there really wasn't any equipment available for black children. Yeah. So she... She didn't have the opportunity to kind of, like, really train. Right. And that's another thing people need to take into account is, like, when you're like, well, the the scales are even yeah. for someone to be able to do for the opportunities for the opportunities. And it's like, well, no, it's not. Because if your school didn't have any equipment at all, it would yeah. make it 20 times more difficult. Yeah, to you become, have to go way out of your way to yeah, participate in those sports. To become an athlete. 
So she improvised her training. She would run barefoot in the fields, on dirt roads. She created her own hurdles. And she used old equipment that she would manage to, like, find around that would be, like, thrown out from white schools, as well as, like, ropes and sticks to improve her high jump. So she was using just kind of, like, random... She was DIYing She MacGyvered all of her workout equipment uh, in order for her to, like, train as a runner. And in basically track and field events to yeah. run hurdles and do high jump and all Does it mention things. like how she like came about falling in love with that sport? No. But isn't that interesting? Yeah. I, you know what? I I imagined that the track itself was probably just because it was that was available. Easy thing yeah. to like do. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you didn't it didn't require as much Equipment. Uh, equipment to start yeah. working in track. And then as far as maybe like the high jump and hurdles, I don't know what piqued her interest yeah. there. That's always fascinating to me, the origin stories. Yeah. Now, this was a young girl in the late 20s, early 30s yeah. doing these things. So her parents were, were like, like, no, 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 honey. We don't like this. You're yeah. a girl, yeah. in case you didn't notice. And uh, so they they discouraged her from participating yeah. in sports, but she was encouraged by a fifth grade teacher, Cora Bailey, as well as her aunt, uh, Carrie Spry, to develop her talents. Two wonderful women. Yeah, going some for sister it. solidarity there yeah. to be like, we see talent in you. And I kept that in because because I, I got this information from about three different sources, and only one of them mentioned them. Mm-hmm. But I decided to add it because I do think. It's kind of like what we posted on our Instagram today. So that was last Wednesday for all of you listeners, mm-hmm. uh, where it was the coach, the um, Notre Dame basketball coach. Yeah. And she was saying how you need to see, pe- we need encouragement from other women, essentially. And we need to see other women succeeding in sports. Yeah. For us to feel confident to move forward. Yeah. And she needed the support of these women yeah. to feel like, yeah, you know what? That validation. No one else in my life is like telling me that this is a thing that I can do, but, but these like people believe they in me. believe in me. Yeah. yeah. So she was like developing her talent throughout elementary school, kind of on her own, yeah. DIYing it. And then when she went to high school, she attended Madison High School, where the boys' track coach, Harry E. Lash, recognized her talent and kind of like took her under his wing. That's amazing. Yeah. So in 1939, at the age of 16, Alice caught the attention of the athletic department at Tuskegee Institute in Tuskegee, Alabama. 16. Wow. And this college was like, hello. We want that. Yeah. She seems amazing. So they offered her a scholarship and her parents gave their blessing for her to enroll. They recognized, I think it was probably a few things. It was like, Clearly, she was passionate about this. Yeah. She'd been doing it since she was very little, training herself up. Um, her talent was clearly enough that it was recognized, it was recognized yeah. by not only this men, this boy's track coach, but also this college. And well, was, they were offering a scholarship as well. They were right? giving her an opportunity. Yeah, and I'm sure she's to one of education. she's one of ten children. Yeah, I'm sure her parents realized that we're not going to be able to give her this kind of opportunity any other way. Yeah, well, and I think it was even like, correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like in that day and age, it was also probably pretty rare for women to go to college right. regularly. So to have that opportunity by g- giving a scholarship and Tuskegee was um, still is like a huge historic black college as well. Mm-hmm. So it's. Uh, it was a big deal for her Very to much get so. into this school. Fun fact, though, she uh, got her degree in dressmaking. 
Oh my god. Which I I actually kind of love because she's this, she's kind of dominating. Yeah. Yeah. And she's dominating in this male field. And yet, like, she went and got her degree in dressmaking. That's just what shows you that people are multifaceted. Yeah. They are. You don't have to be just masculine or just feminine. You can, like, that shouldn't even be the labels for it at all. At all. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone, you don't expect it because you think of sports as being this, even me, who's like, a feminist, but the first thing in my mind was like, oh, dressmaking and sports. Wow. Yeah, you know, and exactly. It's really cool. But it's just, that's just goes to show us how deep seated these like societal. Exactly. That you have to kind of combat, you know, it's not that first thought you have, it's the second thought right, that you say exactly, about yourself. Exactly. Yeah. So before uh, she ever got into Tuskegee, though, she broke the high school and college high jump records barefoot in the amateur athlete union. Oh my God. Yeah. So she was barefoot. And I imagine that would be me. And I wonder if she was better at the high jump barefoot because she trained that way all her life. Yes, you know, it like changes the way you like move. I just love being barefoot. Yeah, I would not like to run and jump barefoot though. I I lived. I lived barefoot in the summer, and your your feet get tough because I would run around and like play tag up at my cabin where you'd be running over like pine needles and stuff. I guess that's true because I your feet just toughen up on asphalt as a kid barefoot all the time. Yeah, I just remember like when summer would first start and I would start going barefoot. I'd be like, gotta build those calluses back up. I've been in shoes all winter. Yeah, that's true. So, uh, yeah, so she had already broken the high school and college high jump records and um, the national championships track and field competition. So over the next several years, she dominated the AAU competition. And again, that's the Amateur Athlete Union. Mm -hmm. And by 1947, the same year she enrolled in Albany State College... Which she went to for, um, like, home economics. Love it! (laughs) She's so cute. Um... God, that sounded condescending. I don't mean it like that. Like, it's so cute that you, like, (laughs) went to school for home ec. No, I think it's really cool. I can't do shit. Yeah. So. I love home ec classes. I loved home ec, too. Yeah. I'm not great at sewing, but I have a sewing machine. I would like to be good at it. Yeah. I would love to be able to make my own clothes. Oh, my God, me too. So that same year, in 1947, she was the national champion in the 50 and 100-meter races and the 400-meter relay and high jump. I've got to say, I'm always really impressed with college athletes who not only excel in school, but also in their sport. How? It takes so much energy. That blows my mind. Like, it really does. There's, um, I know of a lot of skaters who go to college full-time and are, like international level competitors it's like how do you I don't do know. it all you don't sleep how? you don't sleep yeah you get addicted to Ritalin but there's no way that you can't yeah I mean that would be <laughs> there's no way you can't sleep because you know that like your body if you're an athlete you know your body needs that sleep I don't know I don't know man I don't know so during this time you know she's in her late teens and early 20s this is really the peak of her athleticism, her athletic form, but she was unable to attend the Olympics due to their cancellation in both 1940 and 1944 because of the Second World War. Bullshit! So both of those Olympics were canceled, (laughs) and that was really when she was at her, like, at her peak. So it wasn't until 1948, when she was 24, that she was able to attend the Olympics. Mm -hmm. So she arrived in London as a member of the American Olympic team, and despite nursing a back injury, Coachman set a record in the high jump with a mark of 5 feet 6 and 1 eighth inches, making her... So she could jump over me. 
Yes. Yeah, she could clear <laughs> me con- entirely with room to spare. Yeah. Um, and she was the first black woman to win an Olympic gold medal. King George VI, who is the father of Queen Elizabeth II, awarded her the medal. And she said, this quote is cute. She said, I didn't know I'd won. I was on my way to receive the medal and I saw my name on the board. And of course, I glanced over at the stands where my coach was and she was clapping her hands. Aww. When she returned home to the States, President Harry S. Truman congratulated her at a White, Ho- at a White House ceremony. And Coachman was also celebrated in a motorcade that traveled from Atlanta to her hometown in Albany, Georgia. Oh, I love it. She finished her degree at Albany State, and although she was formerly retired from athletic competitions, her star power remained, and in 1952, the Coca-Cola Company uh, tapped her to become a spokesperson, making Coachman the first African-American to earn an endorsement deal. Wow. So she was the first uh, African-American woman to win a gold gold medal. She and broke a world record. She broke a world record, and then she also was the first African-American, period, yeah. to earn an endorsement deal, to make that kind of money. So that's... Amazing. And she wasn't even competing anymore. She yeah. was just kind of like a darling. She was yeah. like an American darling, and people just loved that her. That happens. Yeah. yeah. That's the thing about sports, too, is that we they become like America's sweethearts in yeah. a lot of ways. Yeah. And, in, and it's amazing that she was able to do that in yeah. 1952 as a black woman. Yeah. To get on board with, like, selling Coca-Cola. I'm bringing it back. That's bonkers. Yeah. Bonkers. Bananas. Bringing bonkers back. <laughs> So later in life, she established the Alice Coachman Track and Field Foundation to help younger athletes and provide assistance to retired Olympic veterans. That's amazing. At the 1996 Summer Olympic Games in Atlanta, she was honored as one of the 100 greatest Olympians in history. That same year, she told the New York Times in an interview... If I had gone to the games and failed, there wouldn't be anyone to follow in my footsteps. It encouraged the rest of the women to work harder and fight harder. Yeah. Which, again, is kind of like what we were talking about. It's like, people wonder why representation is important. And it's because there were black little girls watching her compete that were like, she can do it. I I can can do do it. it. Yeah. And, you know, she makes a really good point that, like, sometimes when you're the first, if you don't succeed... It makes it harder for everyone. And I understand that, like, that's that's so much pressure. So much pressure. But then, like, if you do succeed, it, it opens all of these exactly. doors for it, all of these other people. It makes it exponentially more impressive to all of those yeah, people. Yeah, and worth yeah. it. Worth all of the, you know, pain and difficulty. And, and pressure, like you said. Yeah, because I don't think... I think after she won her gold, I don't think she really competed anymore because she was nursing injuries and, like, all of that stuff. That happens a lot to really young athletes, I feel like, when they peak very, very young. It's hard to maintain that um, that athleticism through your life, especially when there's a lot of younger athletes coming up. And if you're nursing injuries, it's best then to listen to your body. And take a rest. Take a rest right. and realize, you know what, maybe there are other things to do with this sport that I can make a difference with without actually actively participating in it. And right. as long as she feels like her career is done, she's done what she wanted to do and she's satisfied with it, then I think that's good. Well, and she never... I think a lot of athletes kind of fear... Not just athletes. I think a lot of people fear losing their identity like if they they leave the sport that they're in or whatever they're doing i mean yeah i think that that resonates with not just athletes but people who have any sort of passion where you know they think if i didn't do this what would i do who would i who would i be and i feel like i've gone through a couple of those crises where i'm like oh god i'm not doing the thing that defined me for so long yeah who am i but i think 
in her case, and I think in a lot of, in the case of a lot of people, you don't discard your passion you turn mm-hmm. it into something else exactly like she created these foundations where she was able to help other young women and other athletes and olympic veterans because i'm sure where she was seeing what years and years of hard work did to her body she can see what would happen to other like olympic veterans as they got older and she was able to fill and these through the cracks yeah and that whole she thing. was able exactly. to fill these holes for people she was able to provide you know futures for young people who wanted to get started in sports and uh-huh. also something for older people who were at maybe the end of their athletic careers yeah. it was, it's a really cool thing to do and in that way not to say that you don't miss actively participating and competing. I'm sure she did. But you are still so involved in the thing that you love so much. Yeah. So, and, and really, really, she's using her power for good. Really. Yeah, absolutely. She's also been inducted into nine different halls of fame, including National Track and Field Hall of Fame in 1975 and the U.S. Olympic Hall of Fame in 2004. Wow. Alice Coachman died on July 14th, 2014, at the age of 90 in Georgia. So she was born in Albany, Georgia, and she died in Albany, Georgia. Yeah. Um, she just seems like such a woman who knew exactly who she was. That's what I was, and was just kind of like, yeah. This is me. This she was just so confident. Take it or leave it. Yeah. She didn't feel like she had to go anywhere or be anything other than exactly mm-hmm. what she was. Yeah. I think that's really inspiring. And it, it seems like she was that way from a young age. Yeah. Like, because for me, so much of my personality relied on making my parents happy that if they had been like, I, we don't like this, I probably would have stopped doing it. I but think she that's, like I think a that's common for girl. kids in general. Yeah. You, know, you want to impress your parents. You want your parents to be proud of you. I think that's a pretty um, standard standard thing for mm-hmm. most kids where if your parents are saying, no, you shouldn't do this or aren't excited about the things you're excited about, that that would be really disheartening. Yeah. So it seems like she knew even from a young age, like, no, this is who I am. This is what I'm going to do. I love and it. that's it. That's so inspiring. Um, so in the months prior to her death, she had been admitted to a nursing home after suffering a stroke, which is sad. It's a sad ending to such an well, amazing and a, life. Yeah, and a stroke, too, is something that really takes away your body. Yeah. But she went pretty quickly after that. It seems like she was in the nursing home for a couple of months and then passed away. Yeah. She had two children from her first marriage and, uh, her second husband, Frank Davis died before her. So she'd Mm -hmm. seen two marriages. She'd had two children. Um, she'd had a pretty full life. Mm -hmm. She really paved the way for, for black female athletes that came after her female athletes in general, but you know, black female athletes in particular, she really, uh, kind of came in and and paved that path for them and blazed that trail for them, yeah. which is really, really cool. Did she ever do anything with her dressmaking? I don't know. I'm sure she made her own clothes. And I'm yeah. sure she made her kids' clothes. That's yeah. what I would do. That's what I... When I was younger and I was in skating, I really wanted to be a coach when I got older, and I wanted to make all of my students' dresses. I wanted to be a skating dressmaker. Yeah. I made, like, a few, like, really awful mock-ups, and it was bad. But I would love to go back to my dressmaker and be like, teach me! Just yeah, yeah. I mean, and actually, it's such a practical... Thinking about it, like, her going to school for home economics and, like, dressmaking was actually very practical because she went on to have all these foundations and, like, uh, you know, do all of this kind of social work, really. And it allowed her to be able to do that because she could make her own dresses. She could, like, you know, she had all these skills at home. Yeah, that she could play the part very well. Right, that, like, that's, that's her home job and then this is her other job. Yeah. You know, so... Women getting shit done. Getting shit done. Doing is my favorite. Everything. It's that's my favorite. Amazing. She really did lean in before leaning in was a thing. Yeah. She kind of like had it all. For real. Yeah. 
two very different stories, but I'm very glad that we ended with yours. Yes, me too, actually. Because mine is a major downer, but I felt like it was an important story to it be told was. this month. Yes. Um, God, I went, I found this amazing blog that was basically, I think it's just called like Forgotten Feminist blog something. And I found all these amazing stories. So I have so You're many like, now. Bookmark that shit. Yeah, I took so many pictures of names and wrote a bunch of names down. And so I'm really excited to do some more of these in the future. I gotta say, it's like my favorite thing. Oh, I love it too. Because I, you know, I, I feel like I have a pretty comprehensive knowledge of, of black history. And didn't really know anything about Alice Coachman. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so I really love reading about these things. And while I knew the Reese Taylor story and I knew how it was going to end to some extent, I didn't know all of those details. So yeah. I'm really glad that we got to talk about her and honor yeah. her today. And I think also just for, like, the the younger kids that listen to us, you know, who maybe don't know these stories, that wasn't a story that was ever told in school. Oh, absolutely During not. Black History yeah. Month. And, you know, maybe a lot of the black community is raised knowing those stories, but I wasn't raised knowing those stories. So for me to um, expand my knowledge and my mind and learn more about um, other cultures and other people and other ways of lives is always something that I uh, cherish very much and love to learn more. So yeah. if you guys have any people that you would like for us to talk about, any feminists, uh, you can email us at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com. Catch us on Instagram, which is where it is at, at Angry Neighborhood Feminist. You can catch us on Twitter at Yanf Podcast, Y-A-N-F Podcast. We have a Facebook group and business page. You can like us on the business page and also leave us a review there, which would be super awesome. You know where else would be a really great place for people to leave a review? Apple Podcasts? Oh, my God. Yeah. Are oh you my reading God, my Apple mind? Podcasts. Apple Podcasts. It's crazy. What a concept. You take, like, one minute of your time, write, like, a quick sentence, like, you guys are awesome. I mean, we're not shaming you. No. No. But. <laughs> we would never do that. That's insane. But, uh, yeah, your support on Apple Podcasts uh, really means a lot to us. Your support for us in Radio Public means a lot to us. It's a free way for you to help us out in a very small but very significant way as well. Um... Ba, 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 ba. Oh, so just another reminder that coming up, we have motherhood episode, fatherhood episode, and a coming out episode coming up, which is all very reliant on the stories that you send us. Yes, and we our, want them all. Our motherhood episode will be coming up first. Yes. So we will probably do a blast on our social media this week yes. asking for those. So I believe Mother's Day is the 12th. Yeah, so we have less than a month. Yes, Um, and we need them before then. Yeah, so get those into us. If you have stories, they can be good, they can be bad, they can be about your mother, they can be about your story as a mother. It can also just be about a mother figure in your life, too. We want all of those. Please, please, please. Please, please, please. We really, really appreciate it. We've gotten some already, but don't be like, oh, they're going to get so many, like, mine's going to get lost in the mix. That's not the case at all. Like, we want to read all of them. We're probably going to be able to share all of them. Please, please, please send them in. It really, really helps us out, or else we're just going to be staring at each other for an hour with a microphone between us. No fun. And it's a podcast, so I mean, it would can't be, really, it'd be like, fine, but it, w- it wouldn't be great. It would just be dead air yeah. for an hour. No one wants to hear that. Yeah. Just be me on my phone. Yeah. Playing, playing games on my phone. <laughs> You'll hear a few, like, video, like, every <laughs> once in a while, like, oh my god, did you see this meme? That would be it, and it would be really boring. So, you guys, thank you so much for listening. Thank you for joining us again on another Forgotten Feminist Favorites episode. We appreciate all of your love and support so much. With all that being said, we encourage you to, to rage on. on. Bye. 
Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. And sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot button issues. And it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.